Well, good morning. Thank you, Carter, for reading the scripture today. So Kurt just gave us a great rundown of what we've been talking about in the series of Believe, the 30 beliefs, practices, and virtues of our faith, and we are in the final stretch. This is week 29 out of 30. Next week, Pastor Chris, I think, is going to come back and wrap it up for us. So we are almost there. Thank you for journeying with us. I hope that you've been learning alongside us. Maybe you've been exploring Christianity for the very first time. This is a fabulous series for that to talk about what we actually believe, how we put that into practice, and how that shapes our lives as we follow Christ. So today we are going to be jumping into chapter 29 on gentleness. This last section has been covering essentially what we would call the fruit of the Spirit. And gentleness is one of those. So we're going to jump in with that. Plato called gentleness the cement of society. And the Apostle Paul says that it's a trademark of followers of Jesus because Jesus was gentle. But do you think our society is really cemented together by gentleness? I don't know if that's your experience, but that hasn't really been my experience. When you look around today, I think we're becoming angrier and more self-centered. And I even think over this last year, year and a half, that um, the circumstances we've been under have sort of put a magnifying glass on this trouble area in our lives. We've become a little bit of a cranky culture. Do you see that around you? And in this cranky culture, we think things like this. I'm entitled to what I want when I want it. My time is important, and I shouldn't have to be inconvenienced by others. I have the right to be impatient or rude when other people are behaving stupidly. That's just common sense, right? I'm too busy to pretend to be polite and should be able to tell people exactly what I think without having to worry about their feelings. So what if I'm rude? I'm never going to see this person again. So what difference does it make? My opinions and views are more valid than anyone else's, and my emergencies need to take priority over anyone else's emergencies. And sometimes you just have to use crude and harsh language to get your point across. Do any of those sound familiar to you? I think a few of those hit a little bit too close to home for me. Our culture doesn't train us to be gentle, does it? We're often taught instead to compete, we're taught to fight and argue, a debate in the olden days, as my kids would say, the olden days, um, was, you know, a cordial, respectful sharing of ideas. When you hear debate today, is that what you think of? Or do you envision raised voices, people leaping out of their seats and flailing their fists? That's a little bit more what a debate might conjure up in our minds these days. Gentleness is needed more than ever before. There's two ways that we can respond when life spins out of control. We can explode with anger and accusations, pointing fingers all around, or we can respond with calm and quiet strength and a dependence on God to get us through whatever chaos or trial we're facing. In this Believe series, we're not the only church who's gone through this Believe series. In fact, many churches all over North America, and I think maybe even beyond, have gone through this. And at the beginning, when they first were publishing the Believe resources, um, there was a study that was conducted by the Gallup organization on the 30 key ideas that are contained in the Believe book. And you know what? Gentleness came in dead last. It got the worst worst score out of any of them. I got the loser topic, really. Gentleness was last. The quality of gentleness appears to be very rare and evasive in our culture. 
And it didn't really seem to matter that much if it was a Christian or a non-Christian answering the questions. Both groups admitted this area was a struggle. And the question in the assessment, and maybe some of you took that assessment back in the fall, Pastor Kurt referred to that, but the, the question in the assessment that was tripping everyone up was this, are you known as someone who raises their voice? And my question immediately was, well, are you asking strangers or my children? Of all 30 of the statements, this was the one that gave people the biggest problem. Christians scored a little bit higher, but not that much. Both Christians and non-Christians admitted this was an area of struggle. So what does the Bible say about gentleness? I love our key verse today. It comes from Philippians 4, verse 5, and this is what it says. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. That's a nice short one. You could learn that one. Our prayer during this Believe series has been that we would see lives transformed, transformed by the word of God and his power. And since gentleness is apparently an area where almost all of us struggle, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was an area where we all could experience real lasting fruit and change in our lives? So we're going to take a glimpse at what the Bible, kind of a big glimpse of what the Bible says about gentleness, and then we're going to narrow it down to one story, an example that we can learn from. So let's start in the Old Testament. Solomon writes in Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever told your kids about that one? Read that one to them? Gentleness shows up in a lot of lists, lists of qualities that the Holy Spirit wants to cultivate in our lives as we follow Jesus. Gentleness, as I mentioned, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're in children's ministry, you might be able to sing those and get them all right. I can never keep up with the song Pastor Laura has. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 4, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. He writes in another place to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3, That gentleness is like part of our clothing. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Do you notice a pattern here? It's an essential ingredient. It keeps showing up in these lists of what God wants to cultivate in us. The Apostle James, who um, walked with Jesus as one of the disciples, he writes in James 3, real wisdom God's wisdom begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, like Saskatchewan, right? Not two-faced. Gentleness is the opposite of violence. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and giving him advice about how to select suitable leaders in the church. And this is what he writes in 1 Timothy 3. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. 
I like to think of gentleness as like this wonderful aroma or presence. You know this time of year, if you walk around our neighborhood, maybe this is the same in your neighborhood, almost every other house has lilac bushes in bloom. You just take a walk and you smell that as you go. A few weeks back, it was the apple blossoms. It was just delightful to go for a walk because the whole walk you were just feeling, smelling these wonderful aromas. That's what gentleness should be like in our lives. When we come into the room, it should be like that. Wow. Oh, isn't that nice? Maybe people can't even quite put their finger on what it is, but it's gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. In our Believe book, Randy Frazee, who's the author that compiles it, writes this. Gentleness is rooted in our belief in humanity. That's one of the beliefs we covered back in the fall. When we see the people the way God sees them, we're compelled to treat them well. A gentle person, according to God's vision, is thoughtful. They think before they talk or act. A gentle person is considerate. They consistently put themselves in other people's shoes and act accordingly. A gentle person is calm. They're known for their even temper. Jesus modeled this for us in so many of his relationships. So our key question today is, how do I demonstrate thoughtfulness and consideration towards others? Well, here's the key. You need to be connected with people to practice gentleness. I suppose you could practice gentleness with animals, but that's probably easier. You need to be connected with real people to put this into practice. When you think of a gentle person, who comes to mind And if you're with us online, you could just type either their name or their relationship to you. Maybe it's your grandfather or your sister or somebody. Who comes to mind when you think of a gentle person? I hope there's somebody that quickly comes to mind that embodies this in your life. Gentleness is never developed in isolation or in a vacuum. The main context that we have to practice our gentleness in will be in the company of other people with your husband or your wife, with your children, your in-laws, the people you work with, the people you hang out with. Gentleness is demonstrated in our responses to them, especially to those who are under our care, our children. I think that's the hardest one. When Paul uses the word gentleness in our key verse in Philippians 4 or 5, he uses this Greek word that is talking about mild, gentle, moderate, patient. Rather than hotly demanding our rights, wherever, whatever the cost to somebody else, those who have gentleness seek peace in a calm way. When I was growing up, we would have said that's t-shirt worthy. Seek peace in a calm way. Maybe today it's hashtag worthy. Seek peace in a calm way. If you don't think of anything else today, remember that one. When Paul picked the word gentleness, there's a couple words that he uses here in a couple different passages, and there's another word, gentleness, that describes this aspect in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. There's another Greek word that refers to a mildness of disposition, so like a gentleness of spirit, a meekness. It's the word used to describe a tamed animal like a horse. So gentleness for a horse is a choice to bring their power and strength under control, isn't it? It's not that they suddenly become weak. They still have power and strength, but it's come under control as they're trained. So a gentle person isn't a weak person, 
but a very strong, secure, and mature person who uses their strength to face real challenges in their life, but chooses, and here's a funny phrase, not to run roughshod over others. I read that somewhere, and I was like, roughshod? I think I know what it means, but did you know, speaking of horses, roughshod actually refers to a kind of shoe they would put on a horse that had some nails sticking out of it to give them grips so they wouldn't slip? That brings a whole new mental picture to the running roughshod over others expression, doesn't it? That's the opposite of gentle. So these two words that Paul is using, they reflect the opposite of an angry harshness that grows out of our personal pride and selfishness. Christ wants us to become gentle for the sake of others. You can think of it like this. Some of this language that Paul's using is actually... um, some medical terminology, and it refers to like a mild medication. So think of gentleness as a person who's easy on your stomach. It's probably easiest if we think of the opposite of that to relate to it. If you think of somebody who lacks gentleness, who's rough, maybe they're in authority in your life, and I told you that later today they want to see you, what happens in your stomach It's like a knot starts to form. Stress happens. Your stomach starts to churn because they're not easy on your stomach. They might even be trying to do what's best for you, but the way they go about doing it is not good to your stomach. It's hard to take. It's stressful. So a gentle person, it doesn't mean that they're just telling you what you want to hear, but they have found a way to speak it in a way that is easy to on your stomach, speaking it in love. You look forward to meeting with them. You trust them. You know that they have your best interest in mind, and they will be gentle with you. So here's the catch. A person, if a person really lacks gentleness, if you or I lack gentleness, we often don't see it. It's hard for us to to analyze this in our own lives. And if we honestly want to know whether how we're doing in this area, we need to ask someone else. But if we really lack gentleness, people will be scared to tell us. So you really have to find somebody who is mature and secure in Christ, who can speak the truth to you in love and say, yeah, actually, the way that you respond under pressure is really hard to take. But those would be valuable conversations to pursue if you're thinking that you might not be winning in this area. So we don't choose gentleness because we're too weak to fight. We choose gentleness because we're followers of the way of Jesus. So we've looked at a few places in the scripture where it talks about gentleness, but what I want to do this morning is I want to take you to one story where I think it's just modeled so wonderfully well um, by Jesus himself. And that's a story of Peter and Jesus. I love the stories of Peter and Jesus. They're all throughout the Gospels. We're going to look at John. And Peter's story happens um, in a lot of places, but chapters 13, 18, 21, these are some of the main ones um, where we see his story. So Jesus had been traveling and teaching. He had already traveled and taught for three years. He was arrested. Peter denies him three times. He denies that he knows Jesus. Jesus is crucified. Peter is heartbroken. They all go into hiding. And then suddenly, three days later, the tomb is empty. And they discover that Jesus has come back to life. Now, in the days and weeks following that, Jesus appears to his disciples a few different times. And this is one of those times. Sometime between his resurrection and when he went back to heaven, he appeared to seven of his disciples that had gone fishing. 
And with a heart of gentleness, Jesus restored Peter's relationship with him and reinstated Peter into a position of special responsibility. This is actually the third time that they've seen Jesus since he came back to life. You know that awkward moment when there's been a falling out between you and a loved one, and maybe you've already bumped into them once or twice, and nothing's been mentioned, but it's still on your mind. You wonder, is now the time to bring it up? Are they going to bring it up? Should I bring it up? How could this ever be dealt with? Will things be the same? Well, this is that moment for Peter. So we're going to jump in in John 21, which is where Carter read from us. It's a familiar location. They are at the Sea of Galilee. These men have fished at this sea for a living. They've heard Jesus preach from the hills and the shore right nearby. They were saved from a storm once on these very waters. Seven disciples go off to fish. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I don't know if he'd sort of given up or if he was short on cash or what, but he was going fishing. They said, okay, we'll come too. So off they go. They fish all night. They haven't caught a thing. They're tired. The dawn is just breaking. They're tired. What's coming next? Should we just go in? Should we call it a night? And then someone off on the shore calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answer. Now, this is what I imagine. I imagine if this was a movie scene, this scene would be filled with flashbacks. All of a sudden, in a split second, a different part of the story would jump in. And in that moment, no, they didn't get any fish. The voice of the man on the shore, maybe it was foggy, maybe they were too far out, maybe it was just one of those times when they couldn't recognize Jesus in his resurrected form, Jesus says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And suddenly there's this flashback. Wait a minute. It's kind of like a little bit of deja vu. I think we've been here before because actually, if you go back to the very start of John, this is how some of them met Jesus. They were out in a boat. They'd been fishing all night. He was on the shore and he's, he calls the same thing to them. Throw your nets on the other side. And they reluctantly do it. They can't even haul it all in. Their nets start ripping. It's what? What's going on? I, I feel like we've done this before. So in that moment, they say, okay, maybe some of them it was cluing in, maybe not. They throw the nets on the other side, and immediately it fills with fish. And John, who's writing this account, has this light bulb moment, and he says, it's the Lord. And the moment Simon Peter hears, it's the Lord, he grabs his cloak, whips it off of him, whips it around him, leaps into the water. The moment Peter's feet hit the water, I would see a flashback once again. It's not the first time Peter has leapt out of a boat going towards Jesus, remember? One time he said, Jesus, call to me if it's really you and I'll come walk on the water with you. And he did. And then suddenly when he was sinking, Jesus reached out and lifted him up. Peter, wet, is slugging his way to the shore. What's going through his mind? He's reminded of when he stood up for Jesus with the sword at that moment in the garden, and then how he had denied him afterwards, how he heard the women talking about the empty tomb. Even in Peter's shame and grief and all that's going through him, having betrayed Jesus, Peter is being thrust towards Jesus. Think of all he's carrying in that moment, his own grief, his loss, his disappointment in himself, his shame, yet he's powerfully drawn towards the one who loves him, who's waiting on the shore. He leaps in, excited and afraid. 
When he gets to the shore, you can almost hear and smell the scene on the beach. The crackling fire's already going. There's a smell of bread, and there's freshly roasted fish. The boats land, and they see all this scene, and Jesus welcomes them and invites them to come. Come and have some breakfast. So they dry off. They rest their tired bodies. They feed their hungry bellies. And Jesus pulls out the fish and the bread that he already has ready for them and hands it to them. The moment he hands that out, there it is again. Don't you remember? The side of the hill. Jesus took bread. He took fish. He multiplied it. Thousands and thousands ate. Don't you remember? The last supper. He broke that bread. He gave us wine. He talked about his body and his blood. Now they had seen what that actually meant. First they eat. They dry off. They settle in, and then Jesus speaks to Peter, not as a criminal, but as a friend. Jesus says, Simon, son of John. Jesus uses Peter's given name. Jesus was the one who called him Peter. His real name was Simon. He uses his given name and refers to his family, who he belonged to, son of John, as if to say, I know you, Peter, and I know where you came from. Jesus knew all of Peter's history. He knew their relationship and his current feelings and fears. And Jesus responds in gentleness and love. I think even the familiar setup of the scene was part of that, how he was comforting Peter in the midst of having this talk. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Kind of a funny way to phrase it, isn't it? But maybe Jesus asked it like that because Peter had very boastfully said earlier, even if all of them leave you, I will not. I love you more than all of they do, Jesus, essentially. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Well, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus says. And again, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You notice Jesus' question isn't accusatory. He's not asking Simon, how much have you wept over all of this? How often have you fasted and prayed? How much penance have you paid in the time since you betrayed me? No, his question is, do you love me? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time he says to to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And some would suggest that Jesus asks him three times because Peter had denied him three times and he was restoring him each of those times. Peter's hurt. Why would he have to ask me again? I just told him. But Peter, in his hurt, answers with great humility, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then the most wonderful call command, follow me. Another flashback to the beginning of John's account and the beginning of each of the Gospels, the most wonderful sentence, two words, follow me. It's the same invitation or command that Jesus had given Peter three years earlier in a very similar scene on the shores of Galilee. Both follow me's were beside the Sea of Galilee, 
They both followed a miraculous catch of fish. The first time, Peter didn't really know who Jesus was. Maybe he had just heard about him, but he didn't know him. The second time, Peter knew who Jesus was. He was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he was being given the chance to say yes in that context. Jesus repeats his invitation to Peter in this context that's so familiar, and yet his message is, you know what? This wasn't a short-term thing. It's not done yet, Peter. It's just starting. Follow me. Peter's relationship was fully restored by Jesus' gentle invitation. The rest of the New Testament um, tells us how Peter fulfilled this mission given to him by Jesus. He spoke the word of God boldly and provided leadership to God's people. Peter isn't the only one Jesus spoke to with gentleness, and Jesus invites all people to receive his gift of peace and rest, just like he invited Peter. What a fabulous story. I'm so glad that John included it in the Gospel of John. So what difference does this make in the way I live? What difference should gentleness make in my life? I want to give you three practical ways to demonstrate gentleness in your life, to be that peaceful, calm presence as you bring Christ to the world. The first one is gentle answers. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Do you remember that kid's movie, Up, with a little old man who puts all the balloons on his house to float it down to South America, and the cute little boy scout that accidentally tags along with him? And they get down south, and they find these crazy dogs who have these collars that translate their barks into words. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had something like that that translated our harsh words into gentleness as it came out? Well, the good news is we can do this without wearing a collar. That might seem a little strange, Um, but we do have a secret weapon in this area. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't need a voice translator. Our speech is a perfect example of how we need to allow the Holy Spirit to control, lead, and strengthen us. We read in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one cultivating that fruit in our lives, and gentleness is part of that. We often think that whatever we're trying to achieve justifies how we go about it. Maybe what we're trying to get our kid to do, or our spouse, or whoever else, well, we're just trying to get it done. But Scripture provides us an alternative way to come to the same objective, In our house, my kids hear me a lot saying, say the same words in a better tone of voice. Sometimes that's all it takes is that gentle tone of voice, not necessarily a change in the message. Peter himself, later in the book of 1 Peter, writes to us about especially needing to be gentle when we share the love of Christ with others. 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for, to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. He had seen Jesus model gentleness, and now he's calling others to do the same. So our words of one way that we can show gentleness very practically. And it's as simple as this, that when we speak harshly to someone or respond harshly to them, our heart just gets a little bit harder each time. It gets a little bit easier to do it again the next time, doesn't it? But when we speak gently or respond gently, our heart softens and becomes more responsive to God. So we need gentle answers. The second one is gentle actions. 
Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That includes good and gentle actions. When you're driving at night on the highway and suddenly someone flicks their high beams on right as they get to you, what do you do? Or as if you're just waiting patiently with your blinker on to pull into a parking spot and then someone else zips in and gets in there first. What is our immediate reaction? We want to get back, right? Like that's just normal. Revenge is what comes to mind. In fact, some of our most creative thinking happens when somebody has wronged us and we're imagining how we could respond in a really creative way the next time or what we could have said. That usually comes like 24 hours later, doesn't it? What we could have said in that situation to get back at them. It's only natural. This is our natural response to want to get back at someone who wrongs us. But that's what actually makes gentleness so powerful is that it isn't natural. It's supernatural. And in order to express gentle actions, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to pull it off. Jesus wasn't just gentle with Peter. He was, we see many examples of his gentleness, especially throughout the Gospels. In the upper room, when he washed his disciples' feet. In the garden, when he was arrested, Peter hacks off the ear of this servant, and Jesus heals it right in that moment. In the courts, when he was being tried on the cross when he was crucified, and back in the upper room when he first appeared to the twelve, we see gentle words, gentle actions. In each of those situations, we could look at it and say, well, Jesus had a right to go fly off the handle or have an overreaction because of the circumstances, but that's not how he chose to respond. He was gentle. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a white stallion, leading his forces to defeat the Roman Empire, He didn't work that way back then, and he doesn't work that way now. He comes in a spirit of gentleness. So we need gentle answers, gentle actions. And the third one is gentle attitudes. And I actually struggled because I thought, well, maybe that's supposed to be number one, because gentle attitudes lead to gentle words, lead to gentle actions. And I thought, well, no, but if anybody's like me, you need the baby steps first. And the baby steps that you'll get lots of chance to practice is gentle words. And as you practice gentle words and gentle actions, it reinforces an attitude of gentleness. So it's a little bit of a circular thing, but gentle attitudes. In a letter to the church in Philippi, Paul defines what a gentle attitude is all about. I remember memorizing this in junior high, Philippians chapter 2. Of course, the NIV translation has changed the words now a little bit in it, but this is what it says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or in the 80s version, it said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Here's the essential characteristics of a gentle attitude all in that one passage. Do not consider yourself better than others. Take on the nature of a servant and take up your cross. That means denying yourself daily. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Is it sticking in your head yet? We've said that one a lot this morning, Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. We need gentle answers, gentle actions, gentle attitudes. That's a prescription for preventing our hearts from being hardened 
when we are confronted with bad circumstances, challenges, chaos in the world around us. So let me ask you a question this morning as we close. How's your heart? If you're like most of us, then probably there's some part of your heart that's suffering from hardness. The good news is it doesn't have to stay that way. Paul said, let your gentleness be evident to all, but don't forget that last little line that he puts in there. The Lord is near. Now, the Lord is near in the sense that he is coming back soon. He's close to returning again, but he's also near in the sense that he is right here with us today. And his invitation to you and to me is stated very clearly in Matthew 11. It's such a wonderful passage for this season. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How's your heart today? Would you let me pray with you as we close this morning? I would love to pray that the Lord would continue to stir up this fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the example of gentleness that you sent us in Jesus. His desire to love and bring back and restore relationship with Peter. What a beautiful story. Lord, I pray today that you would be at work, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our own hearts, showing us where there's hardness, where we've resisted, and showing us the practical ways that we can begin to walk in gentleness in our relationships at home, at work, at school, in the community. Lord, we pray that that gentleness will will be a sweet smell for our community and those around us. And that because of things like your gentleness at work in us, others will come to know who Jesus really is and the power of him in their own lives. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.